Let's pray together. Our Father, our hearts are sobered by the reality that that the gospel, although it's the greatest news in the world, is hated by the world. And yet it is what this world needs most. I pray as we come to your word this morning that you would help us to treasure your word, the gospel, and the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ. And we do pray for those who are laboring even now to preach your gospel in dangerous places. Would you strengthen them by your Spirit that they might have their hope set on an eternal reward? And may you do that same work in us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Romans 1, verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And this video that we just saw reminds us that this gospel message is the most hated message in the world. It's hated because it's about Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was hated by the world. And he promised that hatred would come on his account. But this gospel is also opposed because it is the power of God. It is through this gospel message that that the Lord is attacking the powers of darkness in this world. And so the forces of wickedness oppose God by opposing the gospel. That is where the battle lines are drawn. And this gospel and the salvation that it brings is the greatest force in this world. It's because of this gospel that lives are changed, that nations are changed. Human history is changed. For this gospel, Countless men and women have given their lives to proclaim it. As we were told even in this video this morning. I read just online just yesterday. News of a brother in a Muslim majority country. Who came to Christ less than a year ago. And has been evangelizing his friends and neighbors. Many have been coming to Christ because of his witness And just yesterday was arrested and is currently in confinement and undergoing torture for his faith. Church, this gospel is no trifling matter. This is the gospel of eternal life and death. And Satan does not want to relinquish any of his own. And even though we know ultimately he's powerless against the almighty Lord of this universe, he does all that he can to wreak havoc in the lives of believers and continue to blind the minds of unbelievers. Again, this is no trifling matter. And yet, here we are. We can tend to forget the earth-shaking reality of this gospel. We can tend to neglect our salvation. Forget about it. Other things taking priority in our minds, in our hearts, in our lives. It sits on the back shelf. Oh sure, we're glad we're saved, but that's where it begins and ends sometimes. And unfortunately for many in the American church, the gospel doesn't captivate our minds, our affections, and our lives like it should. 
And so we need reminders to place it forefront in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives. And our passage will do that for us this morning through the words of Zechariah. If you have your personal copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. Yes, we are still in Luke 1, but it is a long chapter. There's 80 verses in Luke 1, so just to be two more weeks in, in Luke chapter 1. But Luke 1, we have, we're going to be looking at verses 67 through uh, 75 this morning. And here we have the words of Zechariah. Zechariah, a Jewish priest and father of John the Baptist. An angel had told him that his wife would bear a son, and at those words he disbelieved the angel and therefore was struck mute in death. He lived nine months under this discipline of the Lord, only to have his tongue loosed again when he announced that his son's name is John. And when he had use of his mouth again, the first words out of his mouth were praise to God, as verse 64 tells us. And so now in verses 67 through 79, we have recorded for us some of Zechariah's ex extended praise and expression. Now I tend to think that verse 64 is his outburst of praise and verse 67 begins a more ordered and deliberate expression of praise, but some see that the praise spoken about in verse 64 is what we have recorded for us in 67 and, and following. I think it can go either way. But let's read these words together. Let's follow along as I begin reading verse, we'll read verse 67 all the way through verse 79. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. As we begin to look at this passage before us, I want you to notice the introduction to Zechariah's words in verse 67. It says, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. This tells us that Zechariah was not just speaking his own words. He was speaking on behalf of God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit as his wife had been when she spoke. And he is prophesying. He is a spirit-filled prophet. And this goes in line with what we know about biblical prophecy as we have recorded for us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is true about all of the words of Scripture, all of the words that came out of the prophets of God is that they spoke on behalf of God. 
It wasn't out of the heart of man that these words were produced, but out of the heart of God. Now, Zechariah's song or prophecy has been called the Benedictus, which comes from the first word in the Latin translation of his song, similar to the way that Mary's song has been called the Magnificat, based upon the first word in the Latin translation of her song. The song can be broken up into two easily identifiable sections, uh, praise and prophecy, praise and prophecy. Verses 68 through 75 is Zechariah praising God for messianic salvation, the salvation that comes through the sent Messiah. Then in verses 76 through 79, he gives prophecy about John and about Jesus. Today, we will cover this first section, and the second section we'll cover in two weeks after the Thanksgiving service. So here, Zechariah is rejoicing. He's rejoicing because the greatest news of all is breaking into human history. God's Son sent to deliver mankind, was coming. And Zechariah couldn't be more excited, more humbled, and more in awe at what God was doing. So this morning, as we look at Zechariah's praise, we're going to see four truths of the gospel so that we would praise God for all he's done for us through Christ. As we see Zechariah praising God for the salvation that comes through the Messiah, we can be led to praise God for the salvation that we've received through that very same Messiah. So first, we should praise God that Jesus redeems his people. Jesus redeems his people. And we see this in verses 68 through 70. Zechariah breaks out and says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from, his, from of old. Now, upon reading these words, we notice that the language is very Jewish. In fact, it sounds a lot like the Old Testament, maybe something that you would read in the Psalms or the prophets. And that's not surprising. Zechariah is an observant Jew. He's a priest. He knows his Bible. And at this point, he's setting in flow of Old Testament Israel. He is a continuation of what God has spoken to Israel, and he is simply being faithful to all that has been written previously. And so he begins by praising the God of Israel. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, he says. Now this language is very similar to what we see in the Psalms. For example, Psalm 41, verse 13 says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Psalm 72, verse 18 Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. In Psalm 106, verse 48, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. Zechariah is simply in line with the faithful Israelites of old, praising the one true and living God, He's the God who, Genesis tells us, created the world and called Abraham to himself and his family and set apart his family as the family that he would bless and through whom he would build the nation Israel and through them bless the world. And this God is the same God we worship today. It's not a different God, for there is only one true and living God. Now, why does Zechariah worship the Lord? What's his reasons that cause him to break out into praise? Well, look at verses 68 and 69. We see three verbs that describe God's action that prompts him to praise. 
We pray, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for or because he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's praising God because God is beginning to work his salvation plan. Now remember, Zechariah has been mute and deaf for nine months. But he's been told some things by the angel and he knows that his son is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. So he knows that God is beginning to do things. The, the, the actions are beginning to, everything is beginning to put into place so that the Messiah may come on the scene and may do wondrous things among his people. And Zechariah has been meditating upon that for months. He knows that God is beginning to act. Out of the silence of 400 years, God is beginning to work with his people again, and Zechariah is ecstatic and thankful. And he describes God's action using these three words, these three verbs. Again, we see them here in the past tense, similar to the way Mary uses the past tense, but he's speaking about them in a sense of, of anticipation even to see what God has begun, is beginning to do even now. In other words, these are things that necessarily haven't taken place in the past but, but have begun to take place now and are going to continue. First, he says that God has visited his people. Visited. This word visited is used throughout the Old Testament to describe God's grace and his care. The Old the Israelites in Egypt recognized that when God sent Moses to them to rescue and to redeem them, they realized that God had visited them because God had come and spoken to Moses and given them a word of hope. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 4, which is translated, What is man that you care for him? In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that word care is actually the same word we have in our text, which is visited. What is man that you have visited him? What is man that you care for him? This word is also repeated here in our text for us in verse 78, where he, sees, where he says that the sunrise shall visit us from on high. This concept of God visiting man for the sake of care and grace is on Zechariah's mind. And this is a word that Luke the author of this book picks up and loves to use. He, he's used it twice here in Luke 1, recording Zechariah's words, but the word occurs again in Luke 17, verse 6, 19, verse 44, and Acts 15, verse 14. And so through the book of Luke and Acts, which Luke also wrote, he uses this word visited to describe God's gracious care and moving with salvation towards mankind. But not only does he say, praise God because he's visited, but praise God because he's redeemed his people. Literally, he's worked redemption. He's doing redemption. Now, this word redemption here is only used three times in the New Testament. It's used here, and then it's used in Luke chapter 2, verse 38, and then it's used in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. And this word redemption means a release, a set, being set free unto a redeemer. You're being freed to someone who has set you free. It references liberation. Now our minds can read the word redemption as we read throughout the rest of the New Testament and we can jump to spiritual redemption, that we've been redeemed from our sin, that we've been set free from sin. And there's certainly overtones of spiritual freedom and redemption here. But we need to put ourselves into what Zechariah is thinking. And I believe predominantly Zechariah has on his mind physical or political redemption. Liberation from a, an overlord. Liberation from one who is dominating over them. We see this even in verse 71 here where he's going to say that, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He's got in his mind those who are direct enemies on them. And let's remember that Zechariah knows his Old Testament very well. 
He knows that the Messiah will bring physical deliverance to Israel. At this time, Israel was ruled by Rome. They were not free. They were in bondage yet again and needed the Messiah to lead them out into a new exodus. They needed to be set free again to serve the Lord, much like their ancestors needed. But even though Zechariah has in his mind probably predominantly this, this physical redemption of being set free from political overlords, he, there's also aspects of spiritual redemption here as well. Because later in his song, he, he recognizes that through the Messiah, verse 77, there will be forgiveness of sins that come through this Messiah as well. And so as the message of the gospel is made clear throughout the book of Luke, the spiritual aspect will be made more explicit. But here, Zechariah is anticipating the total deliverance of God's people when all the enemies, all those who oppose God's people, and here in his mind, oppose Israel, will be vanquished and done away with, and Israel will be set free to worship God as they desire. But the third word he uses in verse 69 is raised up. He's visited, he's redeemed, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of servant David. Now, the idea of a horn of salvation sounds funny to us. I mean, we just don't use the word horns except to describe our cars, right? I mean, the idea of, of horns and detaching it with salvation just is just a funny connection. But this idea of a horn of salvation is communicating the fact that God is sending a significant figure, a person, to his people. Now, in the Old Testament, the idea, the picture of a horn comes from the picture of an ox with horns. And that this ox is able to def defend himself and defeat his enemies with a powerful thrust of his head using the strength of his horns. This image was then transferred to warriors who had horned helmets and therefore had power and, and communicated power and strength for those warriors. That figure was also then used to describe God himself, that he was the horn and the strength. But then it was narrowed even more to describe a horn from the house of David who would save the nation that God was going to raise up someone who would have the strength and the might to be able to defeat any enemy that came against God's people. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, for in Psalm 132, verse 17, describe this connection between the horn and the house of David. Therefore, Zechariah is here praising God for sending a strong and mighty Messiah to Israel's aid. He knew that these promises were coming to fruition here. And Zechariah recognizes that the Messiah would come to the house of David as was promised in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. And so Zechariah is reflecting upon all that God has written in the Old Testament, all that he has promised to Israel, and he's praising God that now, right here in his lifetime, and starting with his son, this Messiah was going to come and bring redemption. And he recognizes, again, that this came from what was written previously. Because look at verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. This coming of the Messiah was a fruition of what he had already spoken. He's fulfilling his word. Notice that it's not the mouths, plural. It's mouth, singular. Many commentators point out that this, this highlights the unity of the message of all of the Old Testament prophets. They speak with one mouth. One, one mouth. I know my simple addition. Uh, one mouth and unity saying that, that this is exactly what was going to take place, that a Messiah would come from the house of David. They're holy prophets, meaning they were set apart for God's service to accomplish his purposes. These promises go at least back to Abraham, as he will highlight later in our text. 
And so Zechariah here is noting God's faithfulness. God has spoken previously, and now he's fulfilling his word, and he's bringing about what he had promised. So what does Zechariah, praising God for sending a Messiah to Israel to release Israel from their enemies, mean for us today? Well, what Zechariah didn't know is that uh, the day, didn't know on the day he uttered these words is that the completion of the promises that he had read about and that he was celebrating would not take place until long distant in the future. In order for the Messiah to bring about political deliverance, he first had to accomplish spiritual deliverance at the cross. And so before the enemies of his people could be dealt with, he had to deal with the sins of his people first. And so we know that all of these things that he's praising God for, which is vanquishing of the enemies of Israel, is still yet to take place. God is going to fulfill his promise. He will not let Israel down. He will not let one of his words not come to pass. But what Zechariah can't anticipate, and many of the Old Testament prophets couldn't see, is the gap between the two advents of Christ, the two comings of Christ. His first coming to deal with sin and his second coming to deal with the enemies. And so in this, we too see our great hope that through his first coming, sin was dealt with. And so we should be able to explode with the same joy that Zechariah had, praising God that God broke into our world that he visited humanity in the form of his son and raised up Jesus to mightily deal with sin as the great horn of our salvation. And so we're reminded that in Jesus, he has redeemed us. He has delivered us from our sin. And he will one day completely redeem and liberate us as God's people. God has graciously visited you, has he not? Transformed your life, graciously cared for you and dealt with you so that you might be saved from your sin and be radically transformed. This is the amazing reality of the gospel is that God is visiting people and transforming them even today. But we're also reminded that salvation in Jesus is not just a spiritual salvation. That through this salvation, we will one day receive a resurrected body. We will live in the new heavens and new earth where we will still have bodies but without sin. We will live in a new place and have complete peace. And there will nothing, be nothing to fear or anything that we need protecting against because all the enemies will be vanquished. Believer, your redemption will be total and complete. Jesus will accomplish it all. And because Jesus redeems his people, we can thank God that he has included us among the redeemed. Amen? So we first praise God because Jesus redeems his people. Secondly, we praise God because Jesus defeats his enemies. Again, we've already been leaning this direction. But verse 71, Zechariah continues saying that this, this Messiah through this Messiah, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. This verse provides the fuller explanation of what redemption Zechariah had on his mind. And we must not completely spiritualize Zechariah's words here. We see that God's people in the past, describing the deliverance God had given them in similar terms. Psalm 18 Verse 17, the psalmist writes, He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. Or Psalm 106, verse 10, So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. But where did Zechariah get the idea that God would deliver Israel from all their enemies? Because some would say, oh no, you're, you're confused, Zechariah, because you see, Jesus just came to save from sin. He's not actually going to liberate Israel. But there's too many promises in the Old Testament that, that promise 
a full deliverance of Israel for that to be avoided. And, and Zechariah was justified for thinking that. We don't have time to turn there this morning, but Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 through 9, I invite you to write it down. Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 through 9, describes, you remember Matthew, or Micah, verses 5, 2, is the great prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Well, that, that passage continues on and describes that this one born in Bethlehem is going to be a ruler with a scepter who's going to vanquish Assyria and the other enemies of Israel. Zechariah knew that prophecy and many others and knew that the enemies of Israel would be defeated. But ultimately, the concept of the Messiah defeating the enemies of God goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in which God promises that the offspring of the woman would crush, would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent, who is Satan. And so as we look at the deliverance here in this passage of, of God's uh, people being saved from their enemies, we're drawn to look at the cosmic battle between God and Satan. The battle that's played out through all of human history. And at this time, as we said, Israel is still in bondage. And he rejoiced to see the day when that oppression would come to an end. Now, some today see the expectations of the first century Jews as foolish, saying that they totally missed it. They misunderstood what God was doing. And there's a sense in which that's true. Here, Jesus came as a spiritual, they say that Jesus came offering spiritual salvation, and here they thought of a political savior, and they totally missed it. But it must be stated emphatically that they were not too far off biblically. To have political salvation in their sights was not unheard of and not unbiblical. The problem was that they failed to see the necessity of repentance and, and believing in the Messiah. Therefore, when they refused to turn from their wickedness to accept Jesus as their Lord, then the complete deliverance that they wanted and that Zechariah here celebrates was postponed for Come happening at the second coming of Christ. In other words, there's a day when Israel will have all her enemies conquered, and it happens when Jesus comes for a second time. At his return, Israel will, will repent in mass, and he will finally be accepted as their Messiah, and he will crush their enemies once and for all. But for us today, while we too wait for the final day when all enemies of God will be defeated and thrown into the lake of fire, we can rejoice in the enemies that have been defeated already. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to de defeat the enemy. Colossians 2, verse 15 at the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore children, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he, being Jesus, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. Or John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Romans 6, 6-7, we know that the old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Friends, these verses tell us that the world, the flesh, and the devil have all been defeated by Christ. At the cross and through his resurrection, he accomplished salvation. Now, we are not yet uh, delivered from the presence of sin or from the persecution of the devil. We await the final salvation. But 
the author of Hebrews reminds us that it's because of Christ's definitive work on the cross at his first coming that gives us confidence that he will come back to finish the job. Hebrews 9, verse 28 says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So we can rejoice this morning that Jesus Christ is the victor over the world, the flesh, and the devil. The cross and the resurrection were the first installment, and he will return a second time to eradicate this earth from all evil and from all sin. And we will be swept up and be totally saved in Christ. And so Zechariah's hope is ours as well. Just as Zechariah looked forward to the Messiah defeating all of the foes, so we look to Christ and praise God that in him all our foes are defeated as well. But the third thing that we can praise God for, the fourth truth of the gospel, is that God keeps his word. God keeps his word. And we see this in verses 72 and 73. Look at it with me. He says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father, Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from our enemies, might serve him without fear. Zechariah declares that when the Messiah delivers Israel, God will do two things. He will display his mercy to the fathers and he will remember his holy covenant to Abraham. Both of these speak of Messiah's salvation as fulfillment of what God has promised to the patriarchs of Israel. God had given promises of what he was going to do through the line of Abraham. These promises were included in what we call the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, which Zechariah calls in verse 73, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Included in this Abrahamic covenant was the promise that Israel would be a great nation, that God would curse whoever would dishonor or revile them. This covenant was further expounded in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where the nation was promised peace on all sides. So God's going to make him a great nation, and to make him a great nation, he's, he's giving them peace on all sides. They're going to have a time in which they dwell in safety. So Zechariah understood that the sending of the Messiah was an expression of God's steadfast love and mercy towards his people. And isn't this exactly what the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 5, verse 8? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It was in the giving of his son, the giving of the Messiah, that God displayed his love and his mercy toward us who believe. Friends, as we read the Holy Spirit-inspired Zechariah speak about God keeping his covenant, his holy covenant that he spoke 200 years prior to Zechariah, we can be confident that every promise of his word will come to pass in our lives as well. God is faithful to his word all the time, in every age, in every generation. And so we, when we read of God keeping his promise to believers 2,000 years ago, it should give us confidence that he will keep his promise to us today. God is going to completely sanctify you. He's promised to do it. He, Christ, will return. He's promised to prepare a place for you and to bring you home to himself. He's going to do it. You can believe it. He, you will receive your inheritance, which is being kept in heaven for you. Count on it. It doesn't matter how long we wait. God is going to keep his word. It doesn't matter how insurmountable the odds. God will make it happen because he possesses all power, and he will keep his word. Folks, our faith stands on the trustworthiness of his word. We must believe every word that he has given to us. It will all come to pass. 
if we can't trust him, then our faith falls apart because our faith rests upon his word. And so God's promises to Israel must come true because he's got to keep his word. If he's going to, he's got to keep his word to Israel just like he's going to keep his word to us. The fourth gospel truth we see in this text is that God saves for service. God saves for service. And this is in verses 74 through 75. That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. In his final statement of praise, Zechariah states what is the purpose of salvation through the Messiah. Why was Zechariah excited that the Messiah was bringing salvation? What did he expect the lives of the people of God to do once they are saved? He expected service. He praises God that we will be able to serve you. He realizes that once the enemies are dealt with, that they would be freed up to serve God without fear. There'd be no enemies to fear. There's no one there hunting them down. They can worship God freely. And so Zechariah understood that salvation is not just salvation from something, but it's a salvation to something. Friends, God did not save his people just to get away from sin and get away from evil into some neutral place. He saved them so that they might then offer their life and their allegiance to someone else. This is what we saw even back in Exodus, that they, at, Israel wanted to be set free from Pharaoh so that they go into the wilderness to serve the Lord. Salvation for service. And the same is true for us today. Our salvation that we possess was intended so that we would serve the Lord and be about good works. We see this in testimony form in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, where the Apostle Paul says that you, the Thessalonians, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. From idols to serve the living and true God. Hebrews 9 verse 14 says that Christ came and he offered himself to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We had our sins cleansed, our consciences cleansed, not just so we go, great, my sins are forgiven and now I'll just go on my way. We have our sins forgiven and our consciences cleansed to serve the living God. Or the verse you're very familiar with, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one may boast. But verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, you haven't been saved just to secure your place in heaven. You've been saved for service. This is the calling of every Christian life. Too many people have been told that salvation comes with only one obligation, and that's to believe. And once they got that figured out, then they go on their way and do their own thing and live their own life. But many, many people who have claimed to believe have lives that do not reflect the character of the Lord in any form or fashion. Because they have not understood this very principle that God saves for service. He saves for us to be submitted to the Lord, not just at the moment of salvation, but we submit to the Lord every day of our life. We give ourselves to Him. This word serve here does not just mean religious worship. In other words, Zechariah is not just talking about, oh, when he goes to the temple to worship. It's a word that refers to worshiping God with one's life, devoting one's life to God. 
Therefore, the redeemed, as they put their faith in God, they submit their lives to him and serve him with all of their lives, every moment. We have been saved so, so that we would serve the Lord with our lives. It's not just a Sunday thing. It's a 24-7, 365 thing. That's when we serve the Lord. This service, Zechariah says, is before him or before God. This is where we live our lives before him, or as has been called Coram Deo, a Latin term that means before the face of God. R.C. Sproul describes this concept of living Coram Deo in this way. He says, to live Coram Deo is to live one's entire life in the presence of God, under the authority of God, to the glory of God. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever we are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we cannot escape his penetrating gaze. And so if we live our lives before the face of God every minute of every day, there should not be any bifurcation in our lives between the spiritual and the non-spiritual. Friends, all of our lives are spiritual. Every aspect of our day is related to God directly. God sees all things. And so all of our lives are to be service, rendered unto service to the Lord. Zechariah tells us, that this service is to be in holiness and righteousness. This means that our, our days are in accordance with his character, that how the decisions we make, the words we speak, the lives we live are in holiness as he is holy and are righteous as he is righteous. How do we know what that holiness looks like? How do we know what that righteousness is? How do we know that our lives accord with him? It's through his word. We have to know his word, that our lives might be serving him as he desires. Because it is possible, friends, for us to serve the Lord, and we think we're serving God, but we're not serving him in the right way. We have our own conceptions and our own ideas, and we need to run them through the word of God, that they might be in holiness and righteousness. But notice also that this service to God is not a one-time thing. He, Zechariah says that we might serve him all our days. Our service to the Lord is every day, all day, until our dying breath. The heart of a true believer is to serve the Lord as long as we can. And this is a call, friends, to perseverance. It, to continue in the service of the Lord as long as we have breath. To you who are in the early decades of life, be prepared. Be preparing now to serve the Lord for the long haul. Be prepared to persevere for the decades that the Lord gives you. This Christian life is not running a sprint. It's a marathon. That doesn't mean we slow down. It just means that we prepare for what's ahead. Give yourselves wholeheartedly to Christ, serving him every day with the long range in view. Now, to you who are in what's called midlife, I encourage you, based upon this exhortation, to not give up. It's possible in the middle of the race to grow weary and think, do we have the strength to continue? But you still have a ways to run. You have fruitful years to give to the Lord and to his church. In fact, you may be heading into your most fruitful years as you're now able to pour into younger generations at the church. And to you, seniors in our body, I encourage you to continue serving the Lord as you are able. Don't throw in the towel. Don't think your time is done. I pray God gives you vigor to serve him all your days. Not 80% of your days, but 100% of your days. God takes us home when our time is done. But until then, keep pursuing people Keep praying for God to work. Keep giving your lives to the service of the King. And I want us to notice finally that this service is a gift from God to us. In other words, 
the very service that we give our lives to and we devote our time every single day to serving the Lord by serving people is ultimately a gift from God himself. At the end of verse 73 is the word granted, which is where it's found in the, in the ESV. The NASB takes that word and, and puts it at the beginning of verse 74 because it belongs with the phrase in verse 74, but it, it says that God is delivering to grant us that we would serve him. In other words, God saves to give us service to him. This means that serving the Lord with our lives is a privilege given to us by God. We don't earn this privilege. We are given this privilege. It's like a king deciding who gets to work in his palace. And Normally, he would have stringent standards for those whom he would allow. But our king has taken us, the dregs of society, the nothings, and he has adopted us into his family. He addresses us in his clothes, and he gives us the privilege of serving him, the greatest one of all. I just ask you, how often do you thank God for this honor of being able to serve the Lord, being set free from your sin, being saved to serve? We need to ask ourselves, do we see our lives? Do we see our Monday to Friday? Do we see every moment of every day as service to the Lord? Are we serving with our lives, giving of our time and talents and resources for the progress of the gospel in our midst and around the world? We should be serving the Lord in holiness in righteousness every day of our lives. And so church, our salvation, which was worked through Jesus the Messiah, as he defeated our enemies and set us free, is a salvation worth rejoicing over and praising God for. It's a salvation that has radically changed our lives and is still changing lives around the world today. And when it's understood properly, we can say, hallelujah, what a salvation that God has given to us out of his grace. Amen? Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we close this morning simply by praising you for the great work that you have done in us. That you have granted us that we might participate in the salvation found in Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us from our sin. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. Father, we deserve to receive your wrath, and instead we've received your grace and your care. Thank you for your kindness to us. May you cause us to go out from here, to step into our week as the scattered body of believers into all the places you've placed us, going with the mission that we are sent to serve everywhere we go. And may you strengthen us for that cause. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.